the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. From policy to culture, principles to politics, this is The Seth Liebson Show. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 2 this Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. The Washington Post has a fact checker. The AP has a fact checker. At the risk of sounding like Bob Dole, the Seth Liebson Show has a fact checker. His name is David Schweikert. His second job is as congressman representing the 6th Congressional District of Arizona, our dear friend David. Welcome back. How are you, sir? I am fine, though. I don't know if you'd count me as a fact checker because my wife, well, she's always correcting my facts. Facts I give you, not she. I'm with her on most of the other stuff, David. But I got to I got to run this. Uh, I got to run. Are you go, are you going to make me go through the list of really weird stuff that was in um the uh, No, the just one, just one. Class. Just one. Only one. I promise it, you. Can can I, you stand to hear it one more time? Oh, Unlike wait. the $2 trillion tax cut passed in the previous administration that benefited the top 1% of Americans, the American Rescue Plan helped working people and left no one behind. And it worked, folks. It worked. It worked and created jobs, lots of jobs, leading to the strongest growth rate in 40 years. Can you crunch that down for us a little yeah, bit? Yeah, let's walk through this. Yeah. And, and here's one of the frustrations. Um, if you're a leftist, you actually believe that. Yeah. Okay, first the 2017, the December 2017 tax reform, the highest income earners, so the top 10% of income earners, pay a greater percentage of the federal income tax today than they did before. The right. tax code got more progressive. Right. It was the single greatest um, example of making poor people less poor. We took half the population and half the workers off the income tax rolls. They don't pay income tax at all. It was the greatest experience of you know um, f- food insecurity shrinking. It was you know it, when you saw the income inequality numbers move as fast as they did in 2018 and 2019. And thank heaven we had that robust economy from that tax reform going into the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Now let's actually talk about um, the so-called American Rescue Plan. You're now living inflation yep. because of the way it was designed. Many of us kept saying, yes, we need to do some things, but you need to do things to make it so the society becomes more productive, so people have places to work um, you know, and their wages go up instead of an environment where their wages are going up because everything got more expensive. Right. Americans are poorer today than the day President Biden took office because of um, what they've done in opening up the border, you know, creating waves of competition for the working poor, and then what they've done in inflation. America's actually poorer today. Did I do that fast enough? It was fantastic and, and easily apprehensible, which is why I love you. You're always clear, David. What's this business, though, attached to it about the economy having the strongest growth rate in 40 years last? Well, it's just bizarre. Okay, so I 
crashed the economy one year. Right. Because, you, you, hey, I need you to stay home. Don't spread the virus because we don't have enough hospital capacity. We don't know what we're dealing with. So you crater the economy. You go into negative GDP territory. And then the next year, you come back, but only functionally to baseline, going back to bait what would have been the baseline number if you hadn't had to crash the economy. Yeah. But here's the reality, and Anna tried to get a couple of the financial reporters to look at this. There's the Atlanta Fed has this great app. It's called GDP Now. Right. And they're constantly taking whatever economic data is published every day or every week and doing a calculation of what this quarter's GDP is. Seth, guess what the GDP is for this quarter right now? Oh, I wouldn't begin to. What do you got? Zero. Uh-huh. We are uh-huh. flatlined. Zero. So you had a president I remember. I, I'm old enough to remember when good. we used to say 2 and 3% growth was pathetic. We're at zero? Okay. Yep. All right. We are at zero. Um so you have a president getting behind the microphone telling you how wonderful everything. At the same time, the Federal Reserve said, we're screwed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, just the economic the, – look, the discussion on Ukraine um, I thought was fine. Um, you know, it, it, it was the appropriate thing to do. I, you know, I thought it was like, a little odd how much time and that it opened with that. I, I did, well, just as I'm an old speechwriter, I just thought it was odd that it opened there. I'm in but, sync with you. I saw but, your statement on Ukraine. We agree on everything on that, David. I just thought it was a little odd and an awful lot. Yeah, on it. but but it was it gave them something that was semi unifying and was sort of where the mainstream of America was. But then he went on to the economic agenda, and it was just bizarre. My, my only point is take, that it's interesting he finds unity only in talking about two other countries, not our own. Uh, that's oh, yeah. all, that was my yeah. only point. That well, was where and, he found and, unity. Yeah, and okay. the reporters wouldn't publish it, but almost every Republican that had to talk to a reporter after last night said, isn't it fascinating? Um, he's willing to talk about protecting Ukraine's mm. border, but mm. not the United mm-hmm. States border. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because his comments about, you know, we're going to secure the border— after the disaster, we're going to use technology. No, nope. you're going to use everything. Right. Because if you want immigration reform, you don't get to go there until you fix the nightmare right. that's happening across this country. And the nightmare is in our own neighborhoods. You yep. want to know why homelessness, why people are ODing on fentanyl? Yep. You, want, you want to know why people are breaking into your car and your house? to you know, yep. it's, We've just imported waves of misery into the country. Yep. Yep. David, um, you have worked on a lot of legislation to help mediate the mediation <laughs> efforts on COVID, to put it uh, no, no stronger than that. You've worked on it. You've sponsored and written legislation to free up the economy and free up the individual liberties of Americans because of the mediation efforts against COVID. Do we not need to anymore? Is it now over? I, looking around the House of look, Representatives last night, it looks like social distancing was over. looked like masking yeah. is over. Are we well, good you, now? Is, is, with, has the science changed so much that we're oh, good? Yeah. Well, no, no the, the science changed because the politics changed. Ah. You know, you've got to understand, this, this is a Congress that exists on virtue signaling. So when you say, well, we're going to let everyone take their mask off, but you have to sit, um, you know, one chair apart from each other. <laughs> Until, of course, you're hugging each other. Right. I saw the, the I saw or that. Or shaking uh, yeah. hands or uh. doing group photos with the president. Then, in that case, you don't have to be. 
it's theater. Or if you walk you, the ellipse outside all alone where you do want to wear a mask, evidently. Oh. I mean, it's just it's so so unbelievably got, bizarre, David. It's so bizarre. It, it, it's, and th- this is more than just mocking the masks and, and what's going on here. It's the mindset yeah, yeah. that um, virtue signaling, because Democrats truly believe they get judged by their intention. That's right. Not by their accomplishments. That's right. That's right. Um, and we live in a world that the media, particularly when you have a Twitter-type media, you, you reward the you know 20 seconds of virtue signaling and then move back to your misery. That's right. That's um, right. Look, I, as you know, I've had legislation since functionally the end of last November saying, yep. once we have therapeutics. Yep. Because that was always the standard. We, you, you can take a home test. You can take a home PCR test now you want you can you you have an antiviral you know um the pandemic should be declared over but there's an army of lobbyists here in washington and i hate to say around the country that like the extra money of course there's still billions that's the economics of it there's a sociological problem too there's a great deal of a number of our our fellow citizens that like the crisis as well i have to say well the crisis is manipulative those who exist in fear i mean if, if you know the folks on the hard left, they're the people in the Prius next to you on the road. They're in the car alone, and they're wearing a mask. Yeah, I've seen uh, it. It's like wearing a seatbelt on your uh, sofa in your living room. It's the same they, thing. Look, yeah. They, yeah. And, and, and look, that's a psychological issue. Yeah. They live yeah. in fear. Yeah. But as a society, um, you know, maybe what you saw finally on the floor last night is the Democrats are seeing polling where – we're tired of it. Probably. America's yeah. tired of it. The virtue signaling mm-hmm. comes to in. Maybe my legislation to declare the pandemic over will move forward, except there's an army of lobbyists that don't want it to come to an end because of the money. Yeah, of course. Of course. And remember, the Democrats passed um, two, three weeks ago legislation saying the pandemic's not over till 2025. I'm, right. 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 Is there something magical about that year? I think it had more to do with the spending and a presidential race. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, David, you had to sit through it last night. Most of us watched it uh, from afar and abroad. But I knew I knew exactly when he uttered those words. <laughs> I could not wait to talk to you today, as I can't wait to talk to you every week. You are a gem. You are our star. Thank you, sir. All right. Go get him. Have a great evening. Go get him. Now you're quoting Joe Biden. <laughs> Isn't that how we end the speech? I, I, I Go thought you get might him. find that. I thought you might find that funny. <laughs> Shame on you, David Troy. We love you. Godspeed. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. 508-0960. Give us a call. Anything on your mind you want to talk about, State of the Union, Ukraine, Russia, the United States, Europe, whatever you want, and anything in between. Happy to do it. I think my point has has <clears throat> has a little bit of a marginal importance, not the most important thing at all. But I do think it is interesting, and David and I were just talking a little more about that as well, Schweikert. I do think it's interesting where the president, and I haven't seen many people mention this, where the president of the United States tries to craft, create, and forge unity in this country, the only way he can do so is twofold. One, Talk about things he has really very little to do with and two other countries. That was the first, fifth, 20 percent of the speech last night. And David's right, and everyone knows there's a fair amount of unity about sympathy for the Ukrainians. There is, and good. 
Maybe even more would be better. <clears throat> but it's not good enough, and I think the virtue signaling is going to wane over time, and I think it'll probably wane before the sanctions have any meaningless effect – excuse me, any meaningful effect at all on Vladimir Putin, especially the way they're being implemented and enforced and decided upon. It's all going to be too late anyway. So <clears throat> it's virtue signaling at its worst over a serious crisis that no one is prepared to really give us a good answer as to what the solution can or should be, having the first wall fallen, which was Putin not fearing the United States' reprisals or reactions in the first place, knowing he could go in without any problems from the United States or the rest of Europe. That's, that's, that's really the first problem. But as a matter of domestic policy, it's just interesting to me that the president now and the, was the candidate who campaigned on un, unity, ending our divisions, bringing Americans back together, spends 20 percent of his speech on that, and none of it is about the United States. It's about two other countries, two other countries. You know why? You know why? I hate to say it, and I hope I'm wrong, but it's really hard to put a genie back in the bottle once you've broken it. It's really hard to do. Is the bottle too broken to be repaired? I hope not. I hope not. But when you spend four years campaigning that the other party is a party of racist, racists and white nationalists who didn't even win the election in the first place because of Russian interference and illegitimate, when you spend four years, you're breaking a bottle that it's awfully hard to put a genie back into, especially after you double down by saying that it's a party of Bull Connors and Jefferson Davis's and George Wallace's. And it's as equally accurate to describe the Republicans that way as it is to say what they've been saying about Republicans and Donald Trump from circa 2016 to, well, still. Mike's in Peoria. Hi, Mike. You need Mike in Carefree? Uh, okay, I'll take Carefree. I'll take. You were probably in Peoria when you called, and you're now in Carefree. I'll take any Mike, who, <laughs> any Mike who's willing to talk to me. <laughs> well, I had several points. Okay. You know, first, when, when people say that we need to get our house in order before we help someone else, it's, it's, it, you know, everybody's house needs to be in better order, and we're always striving for a more perfect union. But when your neighbor's house catches fire, you don't say, well, gee, I'm painting my house. I can't call the fire. No, you lend them a hose, as FDR said, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. I get that. Don't sure. do that. Your own house will burn down. Uh, it can, yep. And when we talk about what we are asked to give Ukraine, so far the aid we've given them is less than 1% of the aid we gave the Taliban right. in Afghanistan. Right. Last night, Joe Biden bragged about a billion, $1 billion. $1 billion. Uh, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That's 80 times less than our U.S. Federal Department of Education. And, and 180th of what we gave the Taliban. Yep, there you go. There you go. There you go. Nicely put. Nicely put. What about this issue of unity in this country, Mike? Is the genie out of the bottle that's broken, or is that are we? Is the bottle reparable? Do you think we can find unity in this country again? Well, I think we can. I don't think our current leadership can. I, it's, it's as if you have a man in the desert, 
and he likes his left foot and he doesn't like his right foot. <laughs> so he says, I'm going to take the shoe off the right foot and we're going to walk out of this desert. Oh. How far do you go? Yeah. Yeah. And, that's, and the Republicans are equally guilty. You know, uh, in, in, to a certain extent. It's like, you know... You can't have a ship that only half of it's out of the water. Right. 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 I also think that the Democratic Party really only has one playbook, and it's based on divisiveness and division. I really do. I really believe it's based on crisis, divisiveness, and division, and they will invent it where it doesn't exist. They invented a race crisis in this country. It didn't really exist. Exactly. And it's just as worn so thin that no matter what goes wrong, you know, if you're speeding in your car, it's because you're racist. There is a shelf life to this stuff, isn't there? There is a shelf life to it. Yeah. It's just to the point that, sadly, there are still racial issues in this country. Oh, of course. But, But they're made a mockery by calling someone racist because of normal verbiage. Right. When racist stands for anything I don't like, you have so vitiated the term racism that it's almost meaningless, which is, by the way, a dangerous thing to do, because then what do you use when the racist does show up? And uh, again, how how does one get together and solve problems? Right. If if everything that you say is slapped down uh, as a connotation, you can't have... A, reason, a, a reasonable discussion. I mean, Victor David Hansen is just a perfect example of when he explains that so wonderfully. It's like, we don't know how to talk to one another. Yeah, and, and but art. the thing is we used to, and that's the weird thing about this business of unity too, isn't it, Mike? The thing is we used to. Unity shouldn't stand for pleasantly accepting one another's views that we find noxious. Unity should mean respecting our fellow citizens because they are our fellow citizens and Americans who can rally around common principles. Thomas Jefferson in his first inaugural says we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists, the two parties at the time. Differences of opinion are not differences of principle. We understood that. Differences of opinion, yes, of course. But the problem is I think we have a party in this country that has changed that dynamic into one of differences of principle differences of principle, where they have made America the thing we are debating about, not marginal tax rates. They have made the goodness and the decency of America and Americans the issue, not whether we should have a climate bill that adjusts to this many uh, inputs and that many outputs, or an oil policy or an energy policy that has this much import and this much output, or an immigration policy that allows in so many immigrants from this continent or this country or another continent in another country. They've put America, they have made this about differences of principle, not differences of opinion. I think that's the ultimate shame, and that's what makes it so dang hard. Mike, thank you. Bless you. Godspeed. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Got some calls on hold. Don't go away. We will get right back to you in just a second. Sometimes we have a guest or a caller who says something so so, uh, so interesting or new that it uh, really shakes the Welkin ring 
phrase you don't hear much anymore. Lewis Holman here yesterday was one of them. It did one of those <laughs> yesterday, and I said, I, I, you've got to call in tomorrow, and we've got to pursue it then because I just can't do it in three or five minutes. Lewis Holman, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Much appreciated. Uh, Always a delight. Th- thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you. Uh, propose this uh, this interesting thought that you did yesterday that we didn't have a chance to hash out because I thought there was a lot to it, if you don't mind. Sure. So there's this notion that I have been working through, trying to figure out, and, and I'm not sure that I have maybe the exact answer here. But in thinking about how, how, how I consider myself politically, you know, I, I've always identified very strongly as an individualist, as I'm sure have you, as have many conservatives, right? We, we recognize that the individual is the, alter, is the ultimate minority. And so these concepts like uh, uh, social justice or, or um, these, these sort of um, more seemingly collectivist solutions, big government solutions to what we see as ethical problems, you know, we don't really like very much. Right. And what's weird about that and, and what is, is sort of interesting to me is that I'm no longer convinced that conservatives are actually individualists. At, at the deepest sort of moral and ethical level. And the reason I say that has to do with the work of a Yale researcher called Jonathan Haidt. He wrote a book about a decade ago called The Righteous Mind, in which he postulates that there are five moral foundations that we all use to varying degrees or another. Now, the first two of those, harm and fairness, are individualizing, right? We care uh, about the avoidance of harm and that everyone has uh, 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 access to things like water. These are these are um, individualizing foundations. Now, the the last three, the binding cluster, are things like authority, uh, in-group loyalty, and purity. And so, what's what's interesting is that conservatives use all five foundations more or less to an equal degree, whereas those on the political left or liberals will use only the individualizing cluster of care and fairness. This is the, the equity thing that we hear about. And what's more, you know, when, we th- when I think about the kinds of things that conservatives talk about, you know, we're very interested in the West as a civilizational project and protecting the, what Edmund Burke described uh, as the, the negotiated contract that our civilization is between the dead, the living, and those yet live, uh, who have yet to live. Um, and this is all, you know, this is a, in some sense, a very collectivistic mindset. Now, I would, I would point you then to the alternative on the left. What we see culturally is an obsession with individual identity and concepts like affirmative action, all of which move to elevate the sort of uh, uh, temporary cries of the individual over sort of the long civilizational project to which we're all members in a compact. Yes. How does that sit with you, Seth? Are no, we no, no I, I, I'm following you, and I think if I understand, and I don't claim to understand the height thesis as well as as you, or or even that well at all. But I think the beginning problem. What was what was the first ethos that the liberals or the left tends to rally around? Did you say it's fairness and equity? Uh, harm. And then fairness after, and harm reduction. Fairness and harm reduction. Okay, let's yeah. take the fairness thing for a second because I think this is a problem that has been foisted on us that we didn't start out with. 
I think it has been foisted on us by leftist or progressivist instincts. Relativistic, perhaps, is the best description of it. And I agree with you that too many conservatives bought into it. We did a pretty good job, I thought, uh, Lewis, in, in, in outlining the contours of what should be embraced there in our Declaration of Independence when we spoke about equality. All men are created equal. And the, right, yeah, back to the Judeo-Christian notion of equality before God and therefore the law, which is uh, unique to the West. Yes, exactly. All right, here's the music. You know that what that means. Let, let's pursue that on the other side of this break. Let me pick it up from there with you. Lewis Holman, we have some other callers on hold. Don't leave. You'll probably want to weigh in on this, too. It's a fascinating question. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Lewis Holman is on the line, and we're talking about some interesting theories having to do with uh, the conservative movement, individualism, individual rights, and uh, a theory <clears throat> that Professor Jonathan Haidt has staked out. So, Lewis, I, I guess I would start by saying this, and this is the kind of conversation that you know we could we could you know lubricate over for for hours upon hours. But I guess I would start off by saying that you know if fairness is and harm reduction is the uh, first set of principles, or are the first two set of principles that animate the American left. Um, you're right. Uh, conservatives have yielded too much to it and given too much countenance to it as well. But we had a pretty good understanding of it in our origins, uh, outlined in what made us a country and a people in the first place, which was the Declaration of Independence and its recognition of self-evident human equality. Yes, as you put it, uh, equality before uh, below uh, equality, really, in our inequality, our equal inequality uh, below God, and our and our equal superiority above animals. There is something unique and uh, important about the human condition. What's interesting about that notion of equality is, yes, that is that is a Western concept uh, combined through what we Straussians call uh, the wedding of Athens and Jerusalem. Uh, what you get from biblical wisdom, as well as what you get from you know uh, the ancient Greeks. And, 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 and we distill that into how we govern ourselves. Free elections. The only reason I would al allow you to govern me, Lewis, right, is because you and I are equal and I have given you my consent to govern me. And you, in turn, in this agreement, give me that consent to govern you should circumstances change or should I try and do that, but again, only with your consent. The entire principle of equality is what underpins a government that runs itself under that 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 that, that exists due to free elections where each man gets one vote, one man, one vote, right? That's the principle of equality, and it's also the governing principle of individual rights. Why is your right and all of your rights, why are all of your rights as important as all of my rights? Again, the principle of equality, which I believe the securing of which individual rights was the purpose of our founding, as I say, the first time a country founded itself, not based on blood and not based on an appeal to a divine right of king. So I'm, uh, that, that would be my first opening thought. It's been perverted. It's been perverted into some kind of animal farm notion of equality and equity. But that's what it meant originally, and that's what gave us our individual rights, which I'm supposed to respect yours and you're supposed to respect mine. 
based on the notion that neither of us are naturally superior to the other. This is what the Lincoln-Douglas debates were about, by the way. Let me just let me say that um, the right uh, is subject to and and is compelled by all five moral foundations, while the left is compelled only by those two individualizing uh, okay. harm and equality. Okay, and what that means technically is that the right has a capacity to empathize with all of the arguments the left is putting forward, while the left does not have a parallel ability to understand the right's basic moral calculations when it comes to the rest of the things that we care about. And so that is why we've seen in this country sort of a cultural drag leftward since the 1960s or so, at least partially. Now, another thing I would observe... It's interesting you put it to the 1960s, which I agree with, but I think that is an important thing to consider. Go ahead, and feel free to go to your next thought. Yeah, so so the the next point I would make, coming back to this notion of of are we individualists, well, I I think what conservatives actually are, in some sense, is kind of the uh, the Aristotelian mean sort of between individualism and collectivism, right? We regard the inheritance of Western civilization as useful, and we don't want to do things in the short run that topple our society. It's a principal concern of conservatives. And the the left, on the other hand, um, being bowed by the, the principles of, of fairness and harm avoidance has been much more eager to stake new rights, rewrite definitions, and do all, all sorts of these kinds of games. And what that suggests to me because if, if you're if you're an individualist, game theoretically, right? If you're if you're insecure in your in your position, you actually kind of want a strong central authority that can shield you from the rest of the world. That's why the vanguard of the proletariat in the Soviet Union were bums and alcoholics primarily, right? If you if you aren't doing well, you want a big daddy state to take care of you. I would also submit to you that a confident individualist looks a lot more like the libertarians. Don't get in my way. Let me do what I want. You know, the world is where I want it to be. Conservatives, yes. I don't think, are, are quite either of those animals. Okay, right. Let's talk about this issue of new rights. That's an interesting point you make. If you think about it, you know, we, we were just talking a few moments ago about equality as the basis of free elections and being uh, giving consent to be governed by a fellow American or a fellow citizen. But if you think of the new rights you're talking about, I'm going to guess 90 percent of them off the top of my head, maybe 100 percent, we did not get to vote on. No. They were not not rights we consented to or voted upon. Think of any number of them that are now spoken of. Most of them were handed down by an element or an aspect or a part of the government that, in its original understanding in Federalist 78, Alexander Hamilton said should be the weakest of the branches. Right. Has become you know, so the I, strongest. I the... We have removed consent and created a super legislature, which has created a superannuation of rights. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. As well as, you know, um, you and I didn't get to vote on these new expansion. rights. In other words, we didn't consent to them. The, the classic example I would look to is how um, health care is frequently talked about as if it's a, a human right. Yeah, a fundamental human right. Health care yeah. can only be a human right if we have a limitless supply of doctors and medicines and health staff and the logistical infrastructure to deliver it to everyone, right? And yeah. so if one is a rabid individualist, one might end if one is not a doctor, 
you might want then healthcare to be a human right because it then means that someone is going to take care of you if you are sick. But if you are civilizationally oriented, then you'll realize that this whole idea is a house of cards and that healthcare cannot be a human right because you know, we would have to chain doctors to the hospital beds and keep them working. It wouldn't it wouldn't work, mm-hmm. among many other things, I'm sure. Right. Right. I mean, I think at a certain point, again, I'll refer to the Lincoln-Douglas debates, this was kind of what it was about, whether, you know, one can earn, rightfully earn, the, uh, the, the benefits of his own toil or whether one has a right to the benefits of someone else's toil that they don't get a say on, that they don't have a right. say in. I, I don't really see... And, and by the way, I don't think there was anyone who better understood our founding and declaration than Lincoln in American history. That having been said, I really don't see that there's much much of a confusion on this point. The Democratic Party has followed the notion of Stephen Douglas. Whatever a majority says goes. And remnants of the conservative movement, I'd like to think I and you and the listeners to this show are part of it, kind of stand with Lincoln on this. No, no, I, I, I think that, that is a very reasonable characterization. You know, it, it's. I think it's also the case that um, these kinds of policy games are hard to get out of. Oh, yeah, they are. Hold, hold the thought, hold the thought, hold the thought. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. We've been talking with Lewis Hallman about what it means to be uh, in favor of or supportive of individual rights. Lewis, let me try this as my last thought, and I'll let you have the last word on it, because we're not obviously going to solve these conundrums uh, in in one afternoon. But, you know, I, I guess when it comes to individual rights and my thinking about individual rights, at base that must mean that you have individual human beings who are owning and have ownership of themselves, which includes not only possessions of their faculties and abilities and what they do outwardly in the rest of the community, the polis or the world. But also, you know, it entails certain rights to private property uh, and it and, and, and it entails a respect for fellow citizens to have those same exact inherent inalienable rights. And it seems to me that if we are going to improve on that, if we're going to improve on that, we should do so with a buy-in and not a dictate. We should do so where we don't engage in tyrannies of the minority any more than we do tyrannies of the majority. And, yeah, that's why there are various shades, of course, of conservatism. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's not about the state and it's not about the country. And by state, I mean literally. It's not about Arizona. It's not about Texas. It's not about California. And it's not about Washington, D.C. The entire edifice of our founding and constitution is about you and me and every individual in America. That, 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 that's, I guess I'd leave it at that for now, and I don't know if it satisfies at all. Seth, I, I like the way that you've, you've put that and that it really does boil down – at the end of the day, at all levels, to individual choices in front of a myriad of circumstances. And that's why, you know, I, I think conservatives are rightly concerned with, with individualism and think themselves of, you know, a, a, as individualists. But that, that ideal, that desire to elevate the individual and, and to make life as, as 
easy and prosperous at the individual level, I think, is moderated by the recognition that our ability to do good in the world is inherently constrained. Um, yes. One of the yes, that's a good I, point. I, I wanna, that's a really good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. Go on. Well, the, the last thing I, w- I want to say, I think, is that, you know, we, we had our founding about 250 years ago now. That's about 10 generations of people. And the moral calculus, although human nature does remain the same, of today's world is in some sense different to the world that we had. That's why, you know, we, we have the eternal challenge of, of gathering the wisdoms of our, of our father's generations and integrating it with our own. In that, you know, the founding fathers, they may have had a notion of what, what a right to privacy looks like, but the world that they existed in with that notion wasn't one with, you know, Chinese surveillance states or Facebook yeah. or any of these other things. We have to adapt and fill in our understanding of what our individual rights ought to be as society and technology evolve. Let's pick up on it next week when you visit, Lewis. This is a great debate. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.